Well, as I said, we have now reached this final passage in the book of Ruth. We will proceed on next week uh, in the book of Matthew, starting there at the beginning, and work our way through it. And my hope is that the one book will lead quite naturally into the other. But as you have seen throughout this book, as we've gone through it over these past several weeks, you have seen the suffering that the Lord puts his people through. The suffering that he causes his people to endure. And you might ask yourself, why does this happen? Why did it have to happen that Naomi would endure famine? That her family would be driven from the land of Bethlehem into the land of Moab, a foreign and probably hostile land? Why did it have to happen that Naomi would lose her husband? That she would lose her only two sons? Why did it have to happen that Ruth and Orpah would lose their husbands? And why did it have to happen that instead of being able to live out their days in Moab in comfort, they had to then return back to Bethlehem, to the land of Judah, in order to make ends meet? Why did all this take place? Well, the fact of the matter is that Ruth and Naomi don't get to find out in their lifetime why their suffering occurred. It's only after they are gone... It's only as you read those closing verses of this chapter, the closing verses of the book, that the camera, as it were, draws back and gives an overview of why they suffered. And they suffered so that King David, King David would come into the world. They suffered ultimately so that the Lord Jesus Christ would come into the world. And we'll get into that a little later. I don't want to give everything away. But this should give us a little bit of hope when we experience suffering in our own lives. We don't know why the Lord drives us, why he causes us to go through trials, why he causes us to endure suffering, why we endure disease and death, why we don't have the money that we need. We may never find out in our lifetime why this happens. We may be just like Ruth and Naomi. It was only known after their deaths that David had descended from them. But our hope is in the Lord. And so what I would ask you to take away from this uh, is this idea that God oversees even the sufferings in our lives in order to carry out his great plan of salvation. There's this great overarching plan in which the lives of Naomi and Ruth and all of God's people fit. And the Lord uses his people to bring it about. And there's a plan of redemption that he has for each believer in Christ. And the way that that works out for you in Christ. And all of you can think back to the ways in which you were brought up. Some of you didn't know Christ until a later age. And you came to him through a myriad of ways. Some of you knew Christ from your earliest days. But the Lord used the events in your lives to draw you to him. And so I would ask you to think on that idea that God oversees even the sufferings of our lives in order to carry out his great plan of salvation in our lives. So I've divided this passage up uh, by verses, uh, the first section, the birth of a son, verse 13. Section 2, a blessing to Naomi, verses 14 to 16. And section 3, a bigger picture, 
verses 17 to 22. So first, the birth of a son, verse 13. Second, a blessing to, to Naomi, verses 14 to 16. And finally, a bigger picture, verses 17 to 22. Let's first look at this birth of a son. Well, it took the author of the book of Ruth four and a half chapters to cover the span of only a few months. But it takes him 15 words in Hebrew to cover a span of about nine months, at least nine months. He says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. This is a picture of brevity. It's a picture of conciseness. There's no need to go into great detail here. The legal proceedings in the gate to Bethlehem have been completed. They've been taken care of. And now Boaz takes Ruth as his wife. And the shortness of the verse seems to indicate that she conceived a child shortly after they were married. But there's a very important theological point that is made in this verse. Boaz and Ruth, they conceived the child in the normal way. There's nothing supernatural about it. Nothing about uh, like you read and uh, just turning the page to 1 Samuel 1 or that you read about the virgin birth of, uh, of Jesus Christ. But it was still God who gave the conception. It was still God who allowed her to have a child, to give birth to this son. God gave Ruth conception and it should be said it was to a woman who was unable to have a child when she was married to Malon, to Naomi's son. God gave conception and Ruth gave birth. Now there are probably dozens of ways in which the women of Israel would have contrived to figure out what the sex of this baby was going to be. When uh, Jen was pregnant with Elizabeth, uh, some three years ago, three and a half years ago, we were out visiting some family in St. Louis and one of uh, Jen's uh, cousins, just by the look of her, She said, you are going to have a son. She could tell by the way that Jen carried the baby. Well, as we, uh, those of you who know my family, you know that that her cousin was wrong. But there were undoubtedly dozens of methods that were used or employed to try to figure out the sex of a baby in ancient times. Even today, with the use of our highly technological, the ultrasound devices that we use, even today those can be wrong. They cannot be known. It cannot be known with absolute certainty that a child will be a boy or a girl. But it was the case in ancient times, it is the case in much of the world today, that families longed for a son. They longed for a son, for better or worse. A majority of the world today feels the same way. They long for a son. They place a, a priority on having a son. Daughters often in China are given up for adoption because there's such a premium placed on having a son. And this was the case in the ancient world. And it was especially important for Naomi and for Ruth and their family. They had no male heir. They had no one to carry on the name and the line of Elimelech, the name and the line of Malon. They had no one to do it. And so it was uh, a special day, a special occasion when this child was born, when The son was born. God did did indeed give them a son. And he ensured by this birth of the son that the family name would live on. And so there was rejoicing. 
There was rejoicing. And as we turn now and look at this blessing in verses 14 to 16 that the women of the town of Bethlehem give to Naomi, they're rejoicing over the fact that a son had been born. The scene changes in verse 14. Now we are with Naomi. Ruth has given birth, now we're with Naomi. And she's been visited by these women of the town. And they say to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. You see, the women of the town, they hit on the same theological point that the author of the book made in verse 13. It is God who has done this. It is God who is working. It is God who gave Ruth conception. It is God who allowed her to have this child. And so these women rightly praise the name of the Lord. They bless his name. Now, a number of you here are grandparents. And you understand better than I what I'm about to say. It seems like an understatement for me to say this, but the birth of a grandchild is a blessed and joyous occasion for grandparents. It is a blessed time. And as parents, we have seen the joy that the birth of our granddaughter gave to her grandparents. Such joy. Possibly more joy than they had when their own children were born. It was less of a trial in many ways. It is an enormous blessing to grandparents when a child is born to their son or daughter. But by being a grandmother now, Naomi has a new and nearer relative. She's got a closer kinsman redeemer. She's got someone who's closer to her than Boaz was. And this is an even greater blessing for her because of the need that she had for this grandson. You see, just as God has given Ruth rest in the house of her husband, just as Naomi prayed for her, in chapter 1, verse 9, that she would have rest in the house of her husband. Now God has given Naomi this redeemer, this kinsman redeemer. He has provided an heir for the house of Elimelech. And now all of the land that Boaz redeemed on behalf, or from uh, Naomi, on, on her behalf, so that she would not be destitute, all of that land now will go to this son, to this heir. Well, in the second half of verse 14, the women, they offer up a prayer. They pray that Naomi's grandson's name will be renowned in Israel. And the fact that we read Obed's name in the Bible is a testament to this. His name is renowned. It's renowned beyond Israel, isn't it? People outside of uh, the nation of ancient Israel know the name Obed. But it was Naomi's later son, her great-great-grandson, to be exact. King David, whose name will truly be renowned throughout all Israel. And it's really only through David, it's only because of him, that we know Obed's name at all. Or any of these uh, people's name, for that matter. And then in verse 15, these women speak near prophetically. It's almost a prophecy. They say to them, uh, to Naomi, He shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. These are huge expectations for this little child who's, who's been brought in to Naomi by these women, isn't it? He'll be a nourisher of old age. He'll be a restorer of life. In the Hebrew, there's this sense that he's, he's going to restore your soul. How is it possible for this child to carry out this prophetic utterance of these women? 
But the women mean that Naomi and Ruth will have security. They'll have the security of someone who will care for them when they're old. When Boaz is gone, they're going to have someone who will look after them. The Lord has taken care of them by giving them a child who will see that their needs are met. And this was the case in ancient societies. It's much less the case today in our societies. It's much more often the case that, that, uh, that our parents are, are, are uh, sheltered in, in retirement communities. It's not quite often, as often the case that children take care of their parents. It does happen. And we all know that there are great anxieties that come about from uh, in the, the time of the end of life. There are great anxieties when you anticipate uh, old age. And there have been billions and billions of dollars that are spent every single year to make sure that people are secure in retirement, that they're secure in old age. And you can see from this passage that the concern, that you see from the passage and the, and the whole book that the concerns are the same no matter what age we're in. Naomi was concerned about how she would be taken care of. But the way people try to stay young today, at all costs, the way that we try to pursue youth makes me think that we're more obsessed with it, we're more concerned, we're more anxious about old age than they were back when Ruth and Naomi were alive. But the remedy for these anxieties is exactly the same. It's the same for Ruth and Naomi, and it's the same for us. And it's trusting in the Lord. It's trusting that the Lord will provide, that he will care for his people. It's having the firm confidence that he looks after his people. Well, in the second half of verse 15, these women keep saying these amazing things. And in the second half of verse 15, they say something that is truly astonishing. They say, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. More to you than seven sons. Now, we talked just a few minutes ago about how in this ancient society, it heavily favored the birth of sons. And the, women, the women's words in verse 14 and the first half of 15 are right in line with that way of thinking. They're praising the Lord that a son has been born. But then they say here that Ruth is worth more than seven sons to Naomi. How could this be in a society that doesn't, uh, doesn't esteem women as they ought to be esteemed? How could this be with Ruth, who is uh, only her daughter-in-law, who is from Moab, who was unable to provide an heir for Naomi's husband and son. This same Ruth is more to Naomi than Kilion and Malon and five other sons would have been to Naomi. Well, these women are speaking what we already know. We who have read through this book, we've seen how Ruth has been so faithful to her mother-in-law. We saw how she packed up and left her home country and her family to return to a foreign land with her mother-in-law and to care for her and love her. And these women were well aware of Ruth's steadfast love to her mother-in-law. Ruth's reputation had easily spread throughout the small town of Bethlehem. Her faithfulness to her mother-in-law is remarkable. And now Ruth has given birth to Naomi's grandson. Now she has provided the heir who has been so long awaited. Well, verse 16 says that Naomi took the, the baby, the child, she laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse. 
Now, this is a little bit of a confusing verse, and it needs to be noted that the Hebrew word for nurse has a wide range of meanings, similar to the English word nurse. It can mean to breastfeed. It can also mean to care for, to take care of, like a nurse in a hospital. And this is the way that we should take it in this context this morning. In this context, given Naomi's age and the fact that she had not just given birth, it means that she cared for him. She loved him as a grandmother loves her grandchild. So Naomi's heart now was filled with great joy. She who had once told her neighbors to call her bitter, she is filled with joy at the birth of this child. Well, let's turn now to verses 17 to 22 to look at the bigger picture. A bigger picture. Verse 17 has the distinction of being the only place in the Old Testament where the parents of a child do not name their child. The women of Bethlehem give him his name. The name Obed. The name which means servant. And this does seem unusual to us, but there uh, is an indication in Luke chapter 1, verses 58 to 59, that the relatives and the neighbors of Elizabeth, after she has given birth uh, to John, there's indication that those neighbors and those relatives are going to name this child. And she has to stop them. And she says, no, his name will be John. And she's following the commands of the Lord. And then the women say, a son has been born to Naomi. A son has been born to Naomi, not Ruth. They exclude Ruth here. Now this seems unusual as well. But in the Hebrew, there is no word for grandson or great-grandson. It's son. And the distinction between generations is made uh, by saying something like this, Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon. It is a little confusing, but the way that the Hebrew works and not having a distinct word for grandson or great-grandson, indicates the closeness that is present between generations here. There's a great closeness of generations. It was very likely in ancient Israel, and even in cultures today, that you may have two or three generations under one roof. Grandparents and great-grandparents living under the same roof. So undoubtedly, Naomi would have been living with Ruth and Boaz, and she would have been extremely close to her grandson. And so it is proper for these these women to say that a son has been born to Naomi. Now the author of the book of Ruth saves a surprise at the end of verse 17 for those who haven't read it. And perhaps the first time you read through this book, when you got to verse 17, you, you were amazed at what the author says. The end of verse 17 says, They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now the first time you read this book, you might just think it's an inspirational story. This sounds such so uplifting. Look what the Lord has done in their lives. He brought them from the ashes up to a glorious position. He gave Ruth a husband. He gave her a child. But then you read verse 17 and you realize this isn't just some localized story. This has global implications. This is about the birth of David. And so you read this verse and you realize when the book must have been written, at least at what point after, what time in history after it would have been written. It was written after the time that David was king. Perhaps he was still uh, alive and still ruling at this point. 
Perhaps this book was written to show that David was the legitimate and rightful king. But think about this. It was God's plan from all eternity that Boaz would be the father of Obed and that Obed would be the father of Jesse and that Jesse would be the father of David who was the greatest king that Israel ever knew. Think about this. If there had been no famine, humanly speaking, if there had been no famine, Elimelech and Naomi and their sons would never have gone to Moab. They would never have met Ruth. She would never have married Boaz after returning back to Bethlehem. There would not have been a King David, humanly speaking, if these trials and sufferings had not occurred. So verse 17 shows that all of the suffering that Naomi and Ruth endured was for the greater purpose of producing King David a few generations down the line. And it makes all the pain that they endured worth it. And verses 18 to 22 show that it stretches back even further. They go all the way back to Perez, who's the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. It goes all the way back. This is how God works. He doesn't fly by the seat of his pants. He doesn't work off the cuff. He doesn't respond to contingencies. He is sovereign over all. He is the Lord God of Israel. He is the Lord God of the universe. This, of course, is the genealogy of David. This is the point of this book. To give a snapshot in the lives of one family who brought about the coming of King David. And oftentimes when we get to genealogies, we're reading through scripture. What do you do when you get to a genealogy? Oftentimes we skim it, don't we? We skim it. They, they go on and on and on. But this was not the case to ancient Israelites. It was a very likely that if you were an Israelite, you would have your genealogy memorized. You would know it by heart. The genealogy was very important. Practically speaking, it, it mattered from which tribe you descended. The allotment of land, the allot, allotment of inheritance was given out according to tribe. And you had to know specifically what tribe, what clan, what branch uh, you descended from. But there's a theological importance here as well. There's a theological importance to all the, the genealogies in the Bible. You see, these genealogies, they point to the big picture. They point to what God is doing in history. They testify as to what he is doing in the salvation of his people. You see, there's a, there's a line in this genealogy. There's a line that stretches from Perez, even further back, from Abraham, all the way to David. There's a line. And that line shows, it's a, it's a timeline of salvation history, covering centuries. And it shows how God works to bring about wonders, ultimately to bring about salvation. And while these gene genealogies, they're a list of what has taken place in the past, they're a list of names of people who have lived in the past. They present a, a, a trajectory into the future of what God will do. Judah. Judah was the, the most honored tribe of the 12 tribes. Why? Because King David descended 
from Judah. But that descent from, from King David meant that it was something greater was in store. And ultimately we find that realization in Christ. And there should be a, there's a note that I should make about genealogies. Most, if not all of the genealogies in the Old Testament have been abbreviated in some way. And you can sort of figure this out when you start doing the math between the number of, gener- uh, of generations and give it, being given a specific date. They're, they're typically shortened. Some names have been dropped out. Some names don't want to be remembered. Other names are less important. The important names would be retained. The less important names might be dropped out. And this is why there's a variation between genealogies from, in different places of the Old Testament. And it also should be noticed that the seventh and the tenth positions in a genealogy and their multiples are very important. They're positions of prominence. So there might be names that are dropped out in order to make sure that the right name hits the seventh position and the tenth position. And in this genealogy, who's in the seventh position? It's Boaz. And who is in the tenth and final position in this genealogy? David. But while this genealogy points to David, while it points uh, to serve, it attempts to serve as a, as a reason for why David should be king, it really points beyond him. It goes beyond. And anyone with a cursory knowledge of David knows this. If you've read First and Second Samuel, if you've read First Kings, you know that David was less than perfect. While he was renowned throughout Israel... While he was the greatest king that Israel knew, he was not Israel's forever king. He had many shortcomings. Read those books. It wasn't just his sin with Bathsheba. His life was one constantly filled with strife and struggle. His children, his family life was a disaster. He was chased out of his own uh, palace by his son, Absalom. He led a miserable existence for for a large portion of his reign. But in spite of all of this, what does he say about David? He says, he's he's a man after my own heart. God covenanted to love David. But you see, these shortcomings of David point to someone well beyond him, to someone other than David. And when taken with the rest of the Old Testament, it is clear that someone greater than David will come. And God is explicit about this when he says to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13, When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God is speaking about this forever king who will come after David. And the remainder of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament clearly point to Jesus as being the fulfillment of this prophecy. Ultimately, it is Jesus who will be Naomi's redeemer. It is Jesus who will be, who will restore her in her old age, who will restore her life, who will restore her soul. It is Jesus who will nourish her in old age. And only Jesus can do this because it is only Jesus who can save his people from their sins. It is only Jesus who can fulfill the deepest need that we have. It is Jesus who is, whom Israel longed to come. And it is Jesus whom we long to come again.
Now, those of you who are suffering right now, those of you who are struggling right now, you may not know why it is that you're suffering. You may not know what the purpose is. Those of you who are suffering and don't know the Lord Jesus, the Lord is using that suffering to call you to himself. He's done it throughout history. And he will continue to do it. He's calling you to embrace him and to repent. Turn to him in faith and love him. That's what the Lord Jesus is doing by causing your suffering and your pain. Those of you who do know the Lord Jesus, why would he let his own people suffer? It is because he is shaping and molding you. He's making you better and better. He's conforming you to the image of Christ. He's sanctifying you by the Holy Spirit. Suffering is a way that the Lord accomplishes these purposes. But you do not know. You do not know right now how the Lord will use your sufferings a generation from now or two generations from now. When your grandson or your great-grandson comes into the world. You do not know. And you may not know this side of eternity. Just like Ruth and Naomi did not know. But the Lord can use our pain and our suffering. The Lord alone can give us security. And he can give us rest. You see, David was the greatest king that Israel ever knew. But Jesus is the greatest king ever. The one whom Israel refused to know. But that does not mean that he is not the king of Israel. He is the greatest king. And as many have said before me, there is a, there's a scarlet thread that runs through the tapestry of history. And it runs. It runs from the very beginning. It runs from the fall of Adam. It runs from that point where God says, He will bruise your heel and you shall bruise his head. That scarlet thread that runs from Adam to Jesus Christ. And it is dyed in his blood. It is a scarlet thread that shows us the history of God's redemption for his people. And all we need to do, all you need to do, all I need to do is to repent of our sins and to believe in the one whom the Lord has sent. And the one to whom all of the scriptures point. The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ.